open up the Bible that I know all of you brought with you to church and uh, the New Testament, Galatians chapter 4. I always encourage people to bring their Bibles. And I know some people um, have different translations, but and that's okay. You can follow along, but please bring your Bible because it's just one of those things to be able to see it for yourself. There's some really good things about that. And uh, so open the Bible that you for sure brought with you. And uh, we'll be in Galatians chapter 4. I'm going to read this starting in verse 8 through verse 20. And this is what the Apostle Paul wrote to the church of the Galatians. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that were by nature not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by him, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. And brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you for no good purpose. They want to shut you out so that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone. For I am perplexed about you. These are the words of an apostle who is pleading with the church to remain pure to the gospel. It's an emotional, it's a personal plea. I'm begging you, church, don't wander. And so, Father, we ask that in hearing Paul's words and in seeing what he wrote, that you would teach us and that we would understand the importance of staying committed and true to the gospel. Lord, we ask that you would watch over our church and help us to always stay true, to not wander away. And God, as we read about the Apostle Paul's plea to this church, we also see the tenderness and the affection that he had. And it reminds us of the tenderness and the affection that you have for us. So God, would you help us? God, would you show us what it is we need to know? Would you illumine our minds? Would you meet with us and teach us? And would you remind us afresh of just how much you love us and how necessary it is for us as the church to love one another? So God, we'll give you thanks for what you do in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to do something that I'm not supposed to do. They always tell you never assume anything. So I'm going to start off this sermon by assuming something. And here's my assumption. I assume that in this gathering, there are many people here today, if not most people here today, who know someone and love someone who has walked away from the Christian faith. 
I just, I'm going to assume that. Some have walked away deliberately by just outright denying or rejecting Christianity. Other people have just denied Christianity and walked away subtly over time, kind of in a slow drift into obscurity. Other people have actually thought through what they're thinking and feeling and decided, you know what, I just don't want to do this anymore. But inevitably, what I've encountered is, generally speaking, today we see a lot of people who are leaving the historic Christian faith for one or two reasons. The first reason that I find is oftentimes just because people don't want to be confined to what we call historic Christianity. They don't like the idea of the institutional church. They don't like the idea of authority. They don't like the idea of submitting to anyone or anything. They don't like the idea that there's a certain way in which we ought to live prescribed for us in Scripture. And so they just throw all that stuff out and say, I'm done with that. I'm just living a freewheeling, self-expression kind of life. It's just about me and doing whatever I want to do. And that's one reason that I've seen anyways that people leave. I've seen another reason where people abandoned Christianity, but they remain uh, with the name Christian. And that is, on the flip side of that, is people have actually become so consumed with and committed to their ethics or their morals or their values that they've actually raised the morals, ethics, and values above the very person of Christ. And that they have been so committed to what they value socially or culturally that they have actually put Jesus in the back seat He's kind of in the shadows just lurking around. And that's another way that we could deny or walk away from historic Christianity. And so whether a person spurns historic Christianity in favor of some sort of self-expression or because of strict moralism or values or whatever, when you abandon Christ, there's no other way to say, to say it but to say that person is lost. You can be lost by law-breaking, and you can be lost by law-keeping. In his book, The Prodigal God, Tim Keller writes this. He says, there are two ways to be your own Savior and Lord. One is by breaking all the moral laws and setting your own course. And another one is by keeping all the moral laws and being very, very good. The gospel is different from these two approaches. In the gospel's view, everyone is wrong. In the gospel's view, everyone is loved. And in the gospel's view, everyone is called to recognize this and to repent and believe in Christ. And with that kind of idea, we have to realize that law-breaking doesn't save you. And that one's obvious to many people. What's not so obvious is that law-keeping doesn't save you either. There's a third thing and it's the gospel that everything that you're supposed to be and supposed to do you have to realize you can't do because you sin and therefore God sent Jesus to do it for you I've heard this so many different times of people I saw interviews with microphones and tv cameras and stuff of people on the street and they're like what is religion to you and people will say oh it's just about being a good person and it cracks me up because it's like, yeah, that's basically true. And then they may ask a different question, but similarly, they say, well, what is Christianity? And basically, people inside and out the church, doesn't really matter. They go, well, Christianity is basically about being a good person. No, it's not at all. Christianity is first, 
you're a bad person and you can't be good. And God had to send his son to be good for you. So if you believe in him, his goodness called righteousness will be imputed to you. And by faith, you will be accepted into God's presence. Not because you're a good person, because you're a bad person that Jesus rescued. That's Christianity. It's a lot different. So when Paul gets to Galatians 4, what we see is this. He's showing us that there's two ways to be lost. You can be lost because you are breaking all the laws, or you can be lost because you're trying to keep all the laws. And nobody is justified by law-breaking or law-keeping. You are only justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's it. That's the third way. And so we see in verse 8 where Paul begins this. And I know I have in my notes, and I'm going to do this. I don't normally tell you the behind-the-scenes thing, but in my notes I have, I'm going to do an overview. I'm going to skip that because uh, there's a clock. In the last two services, I went a minute and ten over and a minute four over, and uh, you thought I was torturing babies in the parking lot. So (laughs) I'm going to just skip the first part, and we're going to jump right into verse 8. Where Paul begins by saying, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that were by nature not God's. Remember what Paul's doing. He's beginning by, uh, he, he is addressing the Galatian church. And the Galatian church is comprised primarily of those who are Gentiles. And the Gentiles, what that means is they didn't grow up in Judaism. They were not Jews by birth. They were not Jews by religion. They were pagans, which means they, they worshipped other gods and all kinds of different gods. And so what Paul is saying is in your former way of life, you were worshippers of gods. You were idolaters. You just didn't worship the one true God. And that's really important for us to understand as we come into the, the next section Because who the audience is plays a huge role in what Paul is saying. He said, when you were idolaters, you were enslaved to those that were by nature not gods. You see, there are people who worship God, the one true God, as he's revealed himself in Scripture. And then there's those who do not. Now, every human being on the face of the earth worships something. The idea of worship is ascribing ultimate worth. Every human being on planet Earth has something that they say is the most important to them. Everyone. Therefore, every human being is a worshiper. The question is just simply, what is it or who is it that you worship? And so, if we worship God as he's revealed himself in Scripture, then we're all good. But if we worship something other than God as he's revealed himself in Scripture, we are rightly called idolaters. And idolatry comes in many forms. It could be little statues, but it also can be money. It can be our families. It can be our career. It could be our car. It could be our bodies. It could be our nutrition, whatever. All of these various things can become idols, things that we ascribe ultimate worth to. Now, you know what you ascribe ultimate worth to by simply asking yourself the question, what, where does your mind tend to wander when you aren't disciplined in, and regimented in the way you think. Just kind of what are, where do you go in your daydreams? 
What kind of things solicit or elicit emotion to cause you to weep or cause you to laugh? What are some things that without questioning you're willing to just commit to and get engaged in without necessarily thinking about its cost, risk, benefit, or whatever? You're not making an analysis. What are some of those things? And the answer to those kinds of questions is, gonna is basically going to reveal to you where my God is. For where your heart is, there, there you will worship, whatever it may be. So what Paul's saying is, guys, remember your background? Remember that before you knew God, before you were converted to Christianity, you were enslaved to your idols. But then he goes into a new thing. And he talks about the present reality in verse 9. We'll just read section A and B to begin with. But now, now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, we'll just stop there. You know, what's really important to understand is the way that the Bible describes salvation and it describes the idea that you are saved from your sins and reconciled to a holy God is through these uh, these words that imply relationship. So the, the idea of you know God or God knows you is very relational. It's kind of the idea that you know someone intimately. And in Hebrew, we have this, we have this word called yada, which means to know. It's the same word used of to know someone as to have intercourse with someone. And so you're getting the idea that the knowledge that you have of God and God has of you is the kind of deep kind of like personal, intimate kind of knowledge. This isn't superficial, hey, I stalked this person on Facebook and I saw what they did last weekend kind of knowledge. This is I know what makes you weep. I know what makes you laugh. I know what just really stirs you up. I know what you would like and hate. It's that deep knowledge. And Paul says, now that you're a Christian, and he describes it as now that you have come to know God, there's an intimacy there. There's a relationship there. There's personal relationship. Now that you have a personal relationship, now that you know God, and then he qualifies it. And don't sleep on this qualification. He says, or rather to be known by God. So he wants to say, yes, you've been converted. You are a Christian. You know God. But here's the reality. You need to realize it's not so much you know God. Rather, it's God knows you. Now, that may not mean much to us on first glance, but then you have to realize this kind of principle we experience in all of our personal relationships. None of us has any relationship with another person to any degree of depth except for whatever that person allows us to know about them. So let me give you an example. You're having coffee with somebody. It doesn't matter if you have a thousand questions and you want to get to know this person, so you just, number one, what's this, what's this, what's the boom, boom, boom. And the whole time they stone face, just look at you. Next. 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 That's a terrible cup of coffee that you just shared with somebody. But the second thing is you don't know them. You just don't know them. Knowing a person requires that the other person reveal themselves to us. And unless that person reveals themselves to us, we will never know them. Therefore, when you apply that to the person of God, we cannot know God unless what? Unless he first reveals himself to us. That's how all personal relationships work. It's just common sense, duh kind of stuff. And so Paul emphasizes that. 
God knows you. He knows you. J.I. Packer, the great theologian, wrote a book called Knowing God. If you haven't read it, get it, read it. He writes this, What matters supremely, therefore, is not in the last analysis the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that God knows me. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, who, one who loves me. And there is no moment when his eye is off of me. And there is no moment when his attention is distracted from me. And there is no moment when his care falters. He sees all the twisted things about me that my fellow human beings do not see. He sees more corruption in me than that which I see in myself. And yet for some reason, some unfathomable reason, God wants me as his friend and desires to be my friend and has given his son to die for me in order to realize this purpose. That is beautiful theology. The fact that you and I are known by God to the degree that there is no skeleton in our closets of which God is not well aware, and yet he loves us anyway, how freeing is that? You see, if any one of us really wants to be liked by other people, we will spend a great deal of our time trying to manicure and trying to really shape the way people view us because we believe deep down if people really knew us, they wouldn't like us. What does that do to you when you come to the knowledge that God sees everything? He knows everything about you, every thought that you ever thought. And even knowing that, still sent Jesus to rescue you to demonstrate his love for you and to tell you, I want you. <laughs> what words do we have to describe that? I don't have any. It's grace, it's love. And so Paul reminds these, this church, this is what you have. You have this unfathomable love of God. So then he asks, how, in light of this, can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, which slaves, whose slaves you want to be once more? If you have been adopted as God's children, the Holy Spirit poured into your hearts, now you are co-heirs with Christ, now you are in the family of God, why would you ever want to turn away from that? And what Paul does here is he, he does something interesting. And, and at first reading, you may not see it, but he, but he says to them, the main question is, why would you turn back to, weakless, to weak and worthless things? And remember, he's speaking to Gentiles. Remember, and Gentiles don't have the law. They don't have circumcision. They don't have the Jewish calendar. They're Gentiles. They're, they're not Jewish. They don't have all that stuff. And yet Paul writes to a church struggling with the thought that they want to be circumcised and they want to come underneath the Mosaic law. And he says to them, why would you want to do that? Be circumcised, come under the law. 
But he doesn't just say, why would you want to do that? He says, why would you want to turn back? Turn back? Paul, they're not turning back. They never had, you can't turn back to something you never had. Do you guys get that? So when Paul says, why would you want to turn back? It assumes that, we, we would assume, oh, they want to turn back to their paganism. They want to turn back to their idolatry. They want to turn back to what they used to know. But Paul says, no, they want to turn back to the law. Turn back to the law? But they never had the law in the first place. Yes. And what Paul's saying is simply this. Whether you are trying to earn God's favor or whether you're trying to live your life under the rule of paganism or whether you're trying to earn God's approval and live your life under the rule of law, either way you look at it, that is the elementary, elementary principles of the world. In other words, you're lost. Paganism, you're lost. Legalism, you're lost. If you are a lawbreaker, you're lost. If you're a law keeper, you're lost. Because nobody is justified by lawbreaking or law keeping. That's why Tim Keller wrote the way he did. Those who chart their own course and, you know, achieve their own destiny, they're lost apart from Christ. Those who are going to take matters in their own hands and they're going to be moral and they're going to grit it out and white knuckle it to the end, they're lost apart from Christ. And so Paul is saying, look, why would you guys turn? Why would you turn back? And the phrase there, turn back, is a phrase that he uses and the New Testament uses about conversion. We see it in Acts 15.3 where Barnabas and Paul says, So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion. There's that word to turn back, to turn. Conversion. It means repentance. And so they were describing the repentance, the conversion of the Gentiles. And so Paul's using that same kind of word and he's saying, Guys, you were converted you know God and God knew you. That's why you know God. That, that has happened. You're converted. You've repented. Why are you now repenting to lostness? Why would you do that? And what are these elementary principles, by the way? What, what, what might they look like? Because he uses it in chapter 4, verse 3. And he uses the elementary principles of the world and he directs that phrase to, to Jews in verse 3. But now he directs this phrase to Gentiles in verse 9. And so you have two different kinds of people, Jews and Gentiles, and he's using the same frame. Each of you are committed to the same thing, namely being lost. What does he mean by this? I think the commentator Doug Moo, he has a great way of explaining this. He says, whether you're a Jew or Gentile, you share the same thing. You share the condition of living under a regime involving rules relating to the material world around you. And that together these religious realities are all outmoded with the coming of Christ. In other words, if you live breaking God's law, you still have laws that you obey. Like the people who are like, oh, get rid of the institutional church. I'm going to make it my way and down with all the closed-minded people, right? Because we are open-minded, and now we have new rules, which is you're accepted if you're open-minded. That's the new rule. And then over here, the, you know, the, the law people are like, yeah, it's us. We have the law. We're moral. These icky people, these open-minded people, we only accept closed-minded people. We'd never say that, but you know what I mean. <laughs> and so what ends up happening is we create these us-then categories. 
Of course, we're always good and other people are always bad. And if you're a law-breaking type person, closed-minded people are bad, open-minded people good. If you're a law-keeping person, then kind of laws, morality, ethics, good, uh, not those things, bad. And we categorize everyone in these things. These are elementary principles of the world. Because there's a third way. The third way is not law-breaking. The third way is not law-keeping. The third way is the gospel. The third way is Jesus Christ crucified and risen for our salvation. The third way is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. The third way is Jesus Christ who stood condemned in our place. Jesus Christ, the victorious one. Jesus Christ, the one who's coming back again. Jesus Christ, our King, our Savior, our Lord. Jesus Christ, the one who said, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. So we don't create categories of people we would love, and we don't precondition and predetermine what kinds of people we love. Are you closed-minded or open-minded? Okay, I'll love you then. The gospel says this. You don't get a choice, and you don't have the prerogative. God simply says, love your neighbor. It's a third way. And then he gives us a hint in verse 10 about what the elementary principles may be for these particular people. He says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. The church in Galatia began to adopt the Jewish calendar. They began to take on observance of Sabbath and, and festivals and feasts and whatnot. And Paul's saying these things, these things do not lead to justification. Your observance of the Sabbath will not justify you, will not sanctify you. Your observance of Yom Kippur is not going to justify you. It's not going to sanctify you. Why would you submit to those things? It makes no sense. Especially when he writes in Colossians 2.16. We don't have it on the board, but just listen to it. He says, don't let anyone pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink and with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Verse 17, he says, these things are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Sabbaths festivals, and all the rest, the law itself are mere shadows. But you know who the one who casts the shadow? It's Christ. Jesus is the substance. These things are merely shadows. And so Paul's asking himself the question, why in the world do you settle for shadows when you have access to the substance itself? This was vividly portrayed to me one time. I was at the park with my kids. And there was a little car that you can sit in, the kind with the springs. And my son was really little. And the car was there. And he looked at it. And he pointed at the shadow. And he had his little pacifier. And, and he called it a car. The shadow. Car. I'm like, yeah, bud, it's the car. So in the bark, he went and he sat down on the shadow in the car. Literally just sat down and then smiled and said, car. And I'm thinking, no, dude. What did I do? I put him in the car. And then I just, boom, and watched that thing. And he was gut laughing. His, we called it a gut because his just fell out and he's like, ah. And I remember vividly that moment thinking to myself, why in the world would any parent let their kid be satisfied with the shadow of a car? 
when you have access to the car itself. It makes no sense. So, we have access to Christ in whom are the riches of joy, in whom are the riches of life itself. Why in the world would we want anyone, for that matter, to settle for shadows when we have the substance? All right, enough about that. That's not even in my notes. I need to figure out where I'm at. Um, TikTok, TikTok. You know, when you get to verse 11, you see Paul's raw emotions. He says, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. I fear that this was all waste. And what he's talking about is the fact, if you remember what happened to him in Galatia, he says in Acts 13 and 14, I mean, it depicts Paul. He's preaching the gospel. And you remember what happened there? He got stoned, and then they thought he was dead. And so they dragged him out of the city thinking he was dead, threw him on a trash heap, you know, and like, you know, went about their business. The next day, Paul, he doesn't rise from the dead, but he just kind of wakes up from his unconscious stupor or whatever, and he goes back into the town. And most of us would have, like, you know, been looking for a way out. What does he do? He goes back to the town and keeps preaching. You're like, dude, what, what is wrong with you? But he's now wondering, did I endure stoning and being within an inch of my life for nothing? Did I waste this? Is this all for naught? Church, are you kidding me? I went through hell and back. And this is what you're doing? You're just throwing it all out? You know what I love about the Apostle Paul is he does not shy away from calling a spade a spade. We see Paul saying, life is hard. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. the Apostle Paul writes, apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of, and of me of my anxiety for all the churches, he says. There's daily pressure on me of all the anxiety I have for the churches. I love the Apostle Paul, the rawness and the willingness to confess the reality that life is hard. It's filled with anxiety. And I know Jesus says, be anxious for nothing. But at the same time, the Apostle Paul says, well, I know that that's, that's what you want to aim for, but it doesn't negate the reality that life is filled with anxiety. Life is hard. I remember being with a bunch of pastors some years ago, and, and, I was, and they were like, how can we pray for each other? And I said, you know what? I don't know about you guys, but I feel like being a pastor is hard. I feel like it's hard because it's like emotionally taxing. Sometimes at the end of the week when you've been praying with people and crying with people all week long, you're just like, I'm spent. And then you hear about all kinds of stuff, and you're just like, oh, my gosh. Lord, you have to come and fix this. I don't even know what to do. And I shared that, and one of the older pastors looked at me, and he goes, Son, let me tell you, you better keep that to yourself. When your church finds out that you're weak, they're going to think that you can't handle it, and they're going to want you out. You better keep that to yourself. You just pray, and you just keep on. It sounds like you have a crisis of faith. And I was like, wow, that's the worst advice ever. <laughs> And the reason I say that is because I'm going to stand with Paul and I'm going to say simple, true things, which is this. We live in a broken and fallen world, and I don't know about you, but sometimes life stinks. Sometimes it's so hard. Some days I wake up just so anxious and I feel the pressure daily upon me. And it isn't the evidence that I lack faith. Perhaps it's the evidence that the world hates the faith I do have. 
And so when I wake up every day, and I know this is true of you too, so brothers and sisters, let's be good to each other with this. When we wake up in the morning, it's hard enough as it is. So let's pray for each other. Let's love each other. Let's remind each other of the promises God has given us. It's okay to say it's hard. It's okay to say I'm anxious. But what we do with one another is we do what 1 Peter 5 says, cast all your anxiety upon Christ for he cares for you. What do we do? Brothers and sisters, we point one another to Jesus. Not to pop psychology, but to Jesus. Again, not in the notes. Let's move on. Verse 12. Brothers, he says, I entreat you. I entreat you. I beg you. I plead with you. This is Paul's plea that the church would remain pure to the gospel. He says, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. It's a strange phrase. Let me just explain it as best I can. The Apostle Paul was a Jew. The church in Galatia were Gentiles. Paul became like a Gentile. And now the Gentile church in Galatia is thinking about becoming Jews. And Paul says, don't think about that anymore. Be like me. Be a Gentile. As like a Gentile. All that to say is in 1 Corinthians 9, 21, the Apostle Paul says, to those outside of the law, outside of Judaism, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. And I did that so that I might win those outside the law. In other words, Paul became all things to all people as best he could. And so Paul's looking at the Galatians church and saying, guys, you don't need to be Jewish in order to be a Christian. You just need to be a Christian in order to be a Christian. So follow me. I'm not under the law, but I'm not under paganism. There's a third way. Follow me. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul says, be, or imitate me. Be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. That's the third way. Christ, Christ, Christ. And then he says, verse 13 through 16, we're going to see where Paul describes the relationship between he and the church. He first recounts how they first met and how Paul first preached the gospel. Verse 13, he says, you know it was because of a body ailment, a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. So Paul showed up on their doorsteps broken and sick and weak. We don't know what he was sick with. Commentaries say something, maybe it was like a mosquito-borne illness. Other people said it was some sort of eyesight issue. And uh, maybe it was an eyesight issue. I actually am coming around to that more and more. Verse 15, you would have gouged my eyes out if you could. And then he says later on, this is really funny. This is just for free. Uh, chapter 6, verse 11, see with what large letters I'm writing to you? And so I imagine like, you know, Paul's like, oh, I left my bifocals, but see, Paul, you know. So maybe it was a side issue, but whatever it was, he showed up weak. He showed up infirmed somehow. And that was the opportunity for which he preached the gospel. In other words, under God's sovereignty and providence, God saw to using Paul's suffering as the means by which God would accomplish his purposes. Think about that and let that sit in for a moment. We serve a God who does not waste anything. Our hardest days and our worst sufferings are not outside of the scope of God's will. He can and he does use even our hardest days and our sufferings to accomplish the purposes that he has for us. And we see it in the Apostle Paul. So if you make a left-hand turn in your Bible and go over just a few pages, you'll get to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 7. And we see the Apostle Paul there where he says this. 
to keep me from becoming conceited, that is prideful, boastful, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, and that word is in reference to him encountering Jesus risen from the dead, he says a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. You relate to that, by the way? Three times, man, you're just like, Lord, please take it away. Lord, please, come on. But God said in verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And so the old pastor who told me, boy, you better swallow your weakness is bad advice because if I swallow my weakness, the only strength I have to project is strength that I can conjure up in and of myself. And if I do that, then the only glory that anyone's going to see is my own. So instead, I'm not going to swallow my weakness. I'm going to let it out so that in my weakness, God would show himself to be strong. And then I will demonstrate I'm trusting the sufficiency of God's grace. I'm asking God to come through for me. So when God comes through, he demonstrates his strength and who gets the glory? He does. So don't bottle up your hardships. Let it out. In our culture today, man, we see Paul, and we would see them as the Corinthians did, as just a weak loser because he suffered. And yet Christ said, you're going to go out and preach the gospel, Paul, and suffer for me. So Jesus doesn't see a loser. Jesus sees a man who's committed to the sufficiency of God's grace. Oh, that we would be people like that. All right, we have to keep going. Verse 14. And though my condition was a trial to you, my weakness... You didn't scorn or despise me. Instead, you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. You see, Paul showed up on their doorsteps and firmed, and they didn't despise him. Like, get out of here. We don't want anything to do with you. Instead, they received. I don't want to beat a dead horse, but you know what that, re that word received entails? Hospitality. The church received this man. The church hospitably brought Paul into their life and into their space. They loved him. And if we want to be a church that is going to have the kind of impact that causes a watching world to take inventory and to pause, we would do well to respond to the gospel with hospitality and love. I hate to beat this again, but I'm just saying, man, what you see with hospitality and what you see with love is you see the very love of Christ demonstrated. So Paul says, this is what I experienced from you guys. I experienced hospitality. I experienced love. Verse 15, what then has become of your blessedness? What happened to you? I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. 
You see, what Paul's doing is he's saying the evidence of your true conversion was the fact that you were hospitable, sacrificial, and loving towards me, but now all of a sudden your blessedness is gone. Things have started to change. And what's, what's going on here? And the answer is what's going on here is the church has begun to believe a bad theology. And the false theology is leading to a false way of life. You see, they want to add law. And the more you add law, the worse it's going to get. I said this a couple of weeks ago when I was preaching in our Christian discipleship. We must maintain the purity of the doctrine of the gospel. By continually to continue to hear it and to believe it, the Holy Spirit is supplied to us, Galatians 3, 1 through 4. And in having the Holy Spirit supplied to us, the indwelling spirit produces fruit in and through us. That does not come about by the law. Instead, the law was given, according to Romans 5, in order to increase trespasses, which is to say to teach us how desperate our need is for Christ. And then in Romans 7, Paul says the law also is an enticement. That is, the more you hear the law, the more you're going to want to break it. Ask any two-year-old, don't touch that. And what do they want to do? Touch it. That's human nature. So the more law you add, the worse it's going to get. And for this situation, Paul's saying, when you heard the gospel, what happened is hospitality and love. But now that you've added the law, do you know what's happened? Your heart is growing cold. It's being hardened because you have supplanted the gospel in favor of law-keeping. Don't do this. So then he says in verse 16, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? And then he's going to highlight the relationship that the troublemakers, that's what's referencing the pronoun they, it's referencing the troublemakers from, from Galatians 1. These troublemakers, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. These troublemakers want to shut you out. They want, to, they want you and I to be alienated from each other so that you may make much of them. You see what Paul says? False teaching wiggles its way into good churches, and the result is often the church becomes fractured. And what happens is false teachers want to get a bunch of people around. They're like, come with us, come with us, come with us. And then they create these little pockets, and what they're trying to do is create a wedge within the church and divide the household of God. And in dividing the household of God, how they do it most often is seductively by going to places and they'll look at, um, as Titus 1 and 2 talks about, they'll go to weak-willed people and they will say to them, you are awesome. You are beautiful. You have everything. Oh, man, if I wanted to be anyone in the world, you're who I would want to be. That's how amazing you are. And then in return, these people are going, really? You think that about me? Wow. Well, I think you're pretty awesome too. Do you know how that works? And so these false teachers are coming in and, and puffing these people up, making much of them in hopes that they will reciprocate so that these troublemakers will be made much of. It's kind of like the pastors who lust for fame and fortune and who will literally use their local church as a platform for their publishing dreams. And they're preaching at conferences. I've seen it a hundred times. Yeah, I got a church of 500. We baptize 500 people every month. 
people, the whole town's converted because of us. And then you'll hear, I'm trying to write a book. And I realize if I was in their church, I would go, do not use me for your own vainglory. Don't use me for your platform. Brothers and sisters, may that never be that we ever allow false teaching in such a way that we let our ears be tickled and let the spirit of uh, divisiveness permeate in our church. And the only solution is the gospel. We've got to stay close to Christ. Let's finish this up, verse 19 and 20. You see this term of endearment, my little children, my beloved, my family, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth. You see, Paul's just, his emotion is so painful, so deep, he feels so betrayed that the only expression he uses is childbirth to communicate his pain. I won't fall into the same uh, temptation as Paul. I'm not even going to touch that. I have no idea what childbirth is like. I'm not even going to pretend I know how painful that is. So we're moving on. (laughs) I just know that Paul meant he's in a lot of pain. And the pain that he has is this desire. He simply wants the church to be conformed to the image of Christ. I just want the church to look like Jesus. You know, we hear a lot about this in Christian circles today. Like you got to, you got to, you know, secure your destiny and all this kind of stuff. And sometimes I'll I'll listen to this destiny talk. There's even churches called destiny church and stuff. And I'm like, what in the world's going on? And then I'll ask questions like, what do you think God's destiny is? And it's always like for promotions and and for new cars and stuff. And I'm going, geez, you literally have what God's destiny for you is literally in the Bible. You want to read it? (laughs) Read it. Watch this. Romans 8, 29. For those whom he has foreknown or foreknew, he also, and there's our word, destiny. He predestined. Destiny. This is what God wants for you. And what is it? To be conformed to the image of his son. God's highest priority for you is that you look like Jesus. That's God's highest priority. And he's going to get you there however he needs to. And therefore, Paul took upon himself that same kind of priority. I want the church to look like Jesus, and I'm going to get you there any way I need to. Because that is the greatest desire. That's why he says in Colossians 1.28, it's Jesus we proclaim Warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. It's all about being more like Jesus. So let me circle back to where we began. The Apostle Paul says in verse 20, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone for I'm perplexed about you. I don't know what to do with you. You are on the brink of deconversion. And God is God is so faithful, and Paul trusts the Lord, but it hurts nonetheless. So what do you do when you have family members and people that you love who either have deconverted or are on the brink of deconversion? And I think there's a lot of things in here that we could glean. And unfortunately, I can't go through each of them because we do have a time limit. But I have verses for you in the outline, and so I would encourage you to go read those verses on the last point. There are some beautiful beautiful helps there but let me just read one from James 5 19 and 20 the apostle James says this my brothers if anyone among you wanders from the truth and brings someone and someone brings him back 
Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Obviously, the one who brings back a wanderer is not the Savior. And obviously, we know from Galatians, no one is saved, justified, apart from faith in Christ. So let me put the two together. How do you retrieve a wanderer? You pray and you preach Christ. That's it. I know so many families and people who are like, yeah, but my children, my grandchildren, my cousin, my neighbor, they walked away from Christ. I just, I want to pray to get them back in church. No. Getting anyone in church is not the same as getting someone in Christ. You can go to church every week of your life and still go to hell. Because church attendance doesn't save you. So if you're like me and you have loved ones who've walked away from faith or you have loved ones who are friends who walked away, the last thing you want to do is preach to them, come back to church. Instead, we must pray and preach the gospel. For it's only in Christ are we reconciled. It's only in Christ are we encouraged. It's only in Christ that we're redeemed. It's only in Christ that we are justified. For many people are in the church, but not everyone in the church is actually in Christ. So let's be more concerned with getting people in Christ than we are getting them in church. Let me read this. this is, I only got to read this at this service, and so you, this, is, this is good. You get the extra. You get the bonus. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. God will do it. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You want to know how to prevent deconversion and straying? Do that verse. Don't neglect to meet together. Encourage each other every day. We need each other. So, Father, I pray that you would indeed grant us the burden for one another. Lord, we oftentimes have believed what Cain said of Abel. Am I my brother's keeper? He didn't say that because he was really concerned for Abel. He said that because he killed him. And so, God, it is those who have no love for their neighbors who say, am I my brother's keeper? Instead, it is those in the church especially who love their brothers and sisters in Christ who will keep watch on their neighbors. So, God, would you help us to keep watch over one another, keep encouraging one another, keep especially keep pointing people to Christ because we know, Lord, that if we keep our eyes on you, we'll never drift. And I pray, Lord, that we will always keep our eyes on you because you are faithful and you will never fail us. And to that end, we give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.